I'd never known such love and such terror in the same moment. I had this rush of love, like indescribable. This is my little person. Like I just had finally got to set eyes on him and he was just so beautiful and this absolute terror that maybe I wouldn't get to keep him. Hello and welcome to Mum Life, a podcast for ambitious mums navigating the sweet and messy journey of motherhood. I'm Leonie Kidanor, and each week I will bring you conversations with mums and parenting experts about the highs and lows of motherhood and tips to make our lives that little bit easier. Hi everyone, it's good to be here with you. Today I'm bringing you a conversation with Kat Page a friend of mine who talks about her journey of having a newborn with a congenital heart disorder from birth. Kat talks about having a very medicalised birth, her newborn having a number of procedures, including open heart surgery in the first few weeks of his life. I feel as a mother, you are the most vulnerable you've ever been when you give birth to your child. I remember giving birth to Charlie, my second, during the depths of Melbourne lockdown and Jules, my partner, having to leave soon after the birth to be with Noah, our firstborn. Noah wasn't allowed to visit the hospital given the lockdown rules. After the birth, holding Charlie tightly, alone in the hospital room, I cried and cried and cried. I cried because I felt so overwhelmed by the injustice of not being able to have my family with me. But... I had the privilege of holding my newborn and having him with me at all times. I had the privilege of learning to breastfeed and being there for his every single move during those early stages of his life. I had the privilege of having a healthy baby. And that's what it is. It's a privilege. When I reflect on this conversation and then think about my win and lesson for the week, it really does make my experiences seem so futile. I honestly do feel like both my lesson and win was having this conversation and realising how fortunate some of us are to have healthy children. And for those of us who are facing difficult times with our children's health or family health issues in general, I feel as though listening to this conversation and hearing how Kat navigated her own challenges may be supportive and provide you with some ideas of how to manage the difficult times that you're facing too. Let's cut to the conversation. Hi Kat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks Lee. Really excited to have a little bit of a chat to you about your motherhood journey. Tell us, I guess, as a starting point, what did you do prior to having a baby? What were the things that took up your time? What were your passions and what did you do for work? Sure. So uh, very busy uh, pre-baby, different kind of busy to what I am now, but uh, definitely very busy, very career-focused and very work-focused. So I, at, at the time of finding out that I was pregnant, I was a director at Deloitte in Melbourne. Um, I was a human capital consultant. I was doing quite long hours, as you might expect, being in a big four consultancy, lots of client work, managing um, teams. And I was also doing a lot of interstate and international travel. So 
in the year before I got pregnant, I actually, this sounds pretty awesome and it, and it was, but crazy. I, I traveled to New York, Tokyo, London, and Singapore just in the 12 months before I got pregnant. That was for work. Jesus. And I was actually in Singapore when I found out that I was pregnant and thought that I actually had food poisoning or a bit of a tummy bug before oh, I realized no. um, <laughs> what it actually was. So yeah, so work was a big part of my life. Um, also very social. So lots of dinners and brunches and, you know, the usual Melbourne social life. And then also quite active as well. So doing yoga and um, hit training and running three, four, five times a week. So had a pretty, pretty busy and pretty active life. Mm. And so when you were in Singapore and you found out you were pregnant, was it a surprise or was it something that you'd sort of been planning for? Been planning for it, but I, I found that even though we'd been trying, my husband Luke and I, it still caught me by surprise, even though we were planning. So I think I, and I didn't, I almost didn't feel quite ready. Um, and I hadn't expected it to happen quite so quickly. And in, in fact, it happened so quickly that we, our, our private health insurance hadn't quite kicked in. So I think we're, we, it turned out that by the time the, the date of Alfie's birth would come, I was one month off. Actually, it was less, three weeks off um, the private health oh, insurance. Kidding. So, yeah, had, hadn't quite done the calculations correctly, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did you as a couple decide that you were ready to start trying? Were there things in your life that you sort of, milestones you felt you mm. had to hit prior or was it just ready based on age, et cetera? What mm. was... What was your, um, yeah, situation? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I, I remember when we were on our honeymoon, we were in Sri Lanka, and I remember feeling like now that we were married, it felt like we were allowed to get pregnant, which is hilarious because obviously um, having a baby when you're not married is is really common and completely fine, and we didn't, didn't mm. have any religious beliefs or anything that would make that a factor, but it almost felt like we weren't grown up enough or mature enough, even though I was in my mid thirties to actually have a baby. So we, we did want to be married first. Um, but it probably was also just time of life. We felt ready. So I was 30. So we'd just gotten married in November and I was 36 when I got pregnant. So we knew, you know, you do start to feel increased pressure after 35, even though, um, you know, I remember my obstetrician saying that 35 is actually not considered old for having a baby these days. But we did feel that time was of the essence, I suppose, and and just that sense of moving along. We had spent most of our 30s prior to that time travelling, so we were living in London, living and working in London. Um, I'd done a lot of study prior to that, and we had we felt like we needed to get a lot of life stuff at done first so that by the time we did have a baby, we really felt ready. We felt ready to settle down, if you like. It's interesting that you say that. I think 35, to be honest, I mean, I don't know, unless it's just the circles that we run in, but it seems like a very average age to fall mm. pregnant these days. I know in my mother's group, I, I had a couple of women who were 40, um, most were late 30s, and I think I was the second youngest with another mm. one who was 29 um, who had had a baby. So I don't know whether or not it's the times that we're living in or, you know, maybe just the the in the suburbs that we live in. I don't know. What what was your experience when you had mother's group and all, all of yeah, that? Yeah, so I'm actually the oldest in my mother's group. 
Oh, okay. um, but only yeah. just. So, mm. so I'm the oldest, and, and Alfie's the oldest as well by one day. So I'm probably, I probably there's probably one other mum who's maybe a few months younger than me, but none of them are in their twenties. So they were yeah. all mid, mid, or well, early to mid thirties, I'd say. Yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah, no, yeah. no one in their twenties. Yeah, it's becoming more and more common, I think. And it and it's probably comes down to we've got so many things that we want to do prior to having a baby. Like you said, education. I mean, I had a six-year uni degree, so I'm yeah. not even leaving uni till I'm, you know, mid-20s If and then you start your career and you don't feel quite ready yet. So, yeah, it's almost like you do want to feel set up. But then at the same time, I had the same experience where I was like, but I don't feel like a mum, you know. Mm. (laughs) Am I meant to feel, yeah, is it meant to sort of resonate in a different way because I still feel like I'm 23? Mm. Well, and I I, I agree. I always knew um, that I wanted to be a mum and Mm. absolutely couldn't wait for that point but knew that I wasn't ready prior to 30. Um, I thought, funnily enough, when you're in your 20s, I thought when when I'm – 30, I'll feel ready, but I got to 30 and still felt like I was about 25 yeah, for, for yeah. years. So it probably it probably was around about 35 where I started to feel a bit more settled and a bit more ready. And I think some of it is starting to see your friends have babies as well. And to your point, I, a lot of the people in my social network hadn't started at, at that point, all very career-focused people. I know I didn't graduate from uni until I was 26, 27 as well. And so then, you know, you want to establish yourself and – I think you want to be able to give your child a good life mm. as well. Um, and part of that is wanting to at least have some security in your job, maybe to have bought a house, which which we had as well. Yeah. So talk to me about your pregnancy. Was it smooth sailing? Were there challenges? Well, I actually had a really good pregnancy, which was lucky. So, um, so just as I found – so probably – a week or so before I found out I was pregnant, um, and as I mentioned, I was in Singapore, I'd actually just resigned from Deloitte, which, so this is where the, the unexpected element came in. So I had just taken on a new role and had already signed the contract when I realized that I was pregnant. So that, so when I, when I started my new job, I actually was in my first trimester and like only probably a few weeks in and I was still feeling quite nauseous, but it was probably only, I think probably about week 10 or so I stopped feeling nauseous. I was actually really lucky. I had a really, um, really cruisy pregnancy and, and felt I, I was really lucky. I didn't have any pain or too much nausea. Um, it wasn't until third trimester I actually got pelvic instability or pelvic girdle pain. I'm not sure if you've heard of that or experienced no, that, it, but it's so, like, no. it's a deep, so it's, it's quite. It's somewhat common, I think. It usually hits women in if if they're going to get it. It usually hits them in their third trimester, and I think it um, is partly about body type as well. So it's essentially you get a lot of pain around your pelvis area and your hips, and it can get so bad for some women that they actually can't walk. And I have heard of stories where women have had to be in a wheelchair or with crutches. So luckily, I was nowhere near that bad, but I was having. Um, it feels like a deep muscle cramp in your pelvis um, and run right along your pubic bone. So it's like a, and quite a sharp stabbing pain. So I know when I first experienced that, I, I had no idea what it was because it was so sharp. Like I, I can't describe it except for sharp. That, that's sharp is the best description, I think. 
but I went to the physio. Um, no, I went to my GP and she diagnosed me with this. And then I saw a physio after that and I got put on a clinical Pilates program, which was more around strengthening up my glutes and other muscles to take some of the strain off my pelvis. But that somewhat disabled me through the third trimester. So I was really having trouble walking at all. And having been so active through my pregnancy, I was still doing weights and high intensity work right up until probably 28, 30 weeks. Um, and then that's when the, when the pain started and I was, I was literally hobbling. I had to always try and keep my legs together when I was getting out of bed or getting out of the car, things like that. Cause it was just really shooting pain. So, but up until that point, I've been great. Was it episodes of it or yes. was it sort of constant? Yeah, episodic. Well, it was constant with the walking. So I, I couldn't even walk to, to the train station, for example, um, which is only a 10-minute walk from my house. I had to, to start driving to work. Um, but, yeah, there was two types of pain. There was the pain that came from walking and then there was the, which was kind of a, a lower grade but more chronic pain. And then I had the sharp stabbing pain that was more episodic and would just sometimes happen in the middle of a meeting. And it was, and it was actually, well, you'd almost, it was actually hard not to cry out because it was that kind of pain where it just always took me by surprise when it happened, like being, like being stabbed. So yeah, I just had to tell people at work that they might hear me yell out from time to time, (laughs) but it did make me feel more, a lot more vulnerable, I think, which was a, which was a new feeling that I hadn't experienced before. I'd always taken my health and my physical fitness for granted. And at this point, I started because I think exercising obviously is good for your mental health as well and I did start to feel like, yeah, just less comfortable with myself and with my body and and those sorts of things in not being able to exercise. I found that quite hard, like even walking. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't even. So couldn't yeah, even walking walk. would be no. like, wow. And so where yeah. did you, where's your mindset with that? Like where did you sort of end up with by the time you were, you know, about to give birth, were you mm. did you feel like you'd sort of spiraled a little bit or or were you able to stay grounded? I I went through a period where where I wasn't doing any exercise where I just felt gross. Like even though, you know, obviously when you're getting bigger when you're pregnant, you you kind of I've got quite, I suppose, unrelenting standards on myself. So even when I was getting bigger, getting a bigger tummy was absolutely fine. Like that's normal from a pregnancy perspective and I loved my belly. But just feeling just lethargic and a bit squishy and just, you know, you just feel a a little bit gross by third trimester. But when I started the clinical Pilates, that was a real turnaround for me because I started feeling um, a lot stronger. And even though I wasn't doing cardio fitness at all it was absolutely fine because I was actually really enjoying the challenge of building up other parts of my body through um through the Pilates and and I hadn't done Pilates before and just that that more strength work which I actually loved and enjoyed that just as much and and I think you need exercise to feel good and to feel strong so I didn't it wasn't about how I looked it was about how I felt yeah so you managed to then maintain a relatively even kilter as far as your mindset yep. went throughout the pregnancy then yeah. despite the challenges? Yes, and I would really recommend to others um, if they're having this issue to try the clinical Pilates because it actually made me, it, it, it does a lot of work around your core as well and having that level of fitness for your pregnancy and, and feeling physically fit is actually quite helpful and, and helped probably to prepare me psychologically as well. 
And I think you still need goals as well right up until, I mean, obviously giving birth is a goal, but just because things are getting so much harder by then, having week-to-week goals and feeling, I felt really proud of myself doing the Pilates, even though it was really low intensity, it just felt, I felt good about myself. Did it, did it help reduce the pain? I think it did. I think it did. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it would have been like before, but I definitely felt really strong for the actual pushing part of the labour. Did you continue it on afterwards as well? No, not Pilates. No, no. So I've gotten back pretty much as soon as I gave birth, I wanted to be back exercising. Even the fact that I was able to walk again without pain, I was just thrilled. So talk me through that process. I guess, um, you know, you've just given birth. Talk me through, you know, what happened after that. So I had a relatively um, straightforward birth, luckily. Um, so I so I actually was induced a week before my due date um, and the reason for that was that my son Alfie um, was diagnosed with a congenital heart disorder at about, I think it was our 13-week scan we found out about this. So he um, has a condition called transition, uh, transposition of the great arteries, which is where uh, the structure of the heart has an abnormality where, whereby the aorta and the pulmonary artery are back to front. So they're on the wrong side of the heart. I definitely am not going to be explaining this as scientifically, perhaps as a, as a doctor. Right. But We're not scientists either, so it's no. fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, probably the easiest way I, I had it explained to me was it was like the plumbing was back to front on the heart. And what that would mean was that when he was born, it, it was going to be a very heavily medicalized birth. So we knew that when we when he was born, he wouldn't necessarily be well, and that he would essentially be um, presenting with with low saturation, oxygen saturation in his blood, and poor perfusion through his muscles and tissues because his heart wasn't doing it, wasn't able to do a good enough job of oxygenating his blood. So we knew he'd probably get whisked away almost instantly um, to have uh, to have a drip inserted in both of his hands that, that actually helped um, keep the so – so when babies are born, they naturally have a bit of a hole in their heart, which is, which is supposed to be there and it serves a purpose, but it usually closes as soon as – or somewhat soon after they're born. So this, he had to have medication when he was born to help um, keep that hole open, which allowed um, – which helped with the oxygenation process between the ventricles. So we knew that that was happening and that actually – and that actually did come to fruition. So he, so when he was born, I was induced, as I mentioned, a week early so that they could control the environment. So we didn't want it to be natural because, because a, a team of doctors needed to be on hand to actually, to actually uh, take him. It all had to be somewhat structured and scheduled. So I gave birth in the afternoon. Alfie came out with, it was a forcep delivery because he started to get a little bit distressed as he was coming out the canal, the birth canal, and they had to, so very quickly things escalated from a normal birth with a midwife to all of a sudden it was like the midwife pressed a button or something, which maybe she did, but there was just all of a sudden so many medical people in the room and I had an obstetrician and she was talking to me in that voice um, the voice, they're very calm, everything's okay, we're just going to do, 
this is what's happening and I'm just going to ask you to push and then when I tell you to push, I need you to push and then when I tell you to stop, I need you to stop. And just that really calm voice that made me know something was not quite right. And what was not right was that when when you're pushing usually, um, the the baby's heart can slow down. That's completely normal. But what was not normal in that situation was that his heart was slowing down when I was not pushing, so in between pushes. So they knew they had to get him out. And once that doctor came in, I think Alfie came out maybe 15 minutes or less, maybe 10 minutes later. So that pushing process for me was very fast, assisted with forceps and quite intense. The positive of that um, was that well, when he did come out, he was actually in much better health than they expected. So I got to have skin to skin, which I think a lot of mums take for granted as being something that happens. I wasn't sure that we would get that opportunity but we did uh, the delayed cord cutting, which meant that my body was still supporting him in terms of the oxygen, um, in terms of his blood. So I was able to hold him on my chest, which was just amazing. I don't know how long that was. That was probably like 10, 15 minutes, but just was the most amazing feeling. Were you emotional? Were you like, what do you Oh, So feeling? yeah, by that stage I was, I was crying. I think, and I had my eyes shut for some reason. Even when he came out, they were like, here's your boy, here's your baby, open your eyes. And I just couldn't open my eyes for some reason. I just had, it was so, so emotional. And he was, he was beautiful. Um, and then they probably took him away about 15 minutes later and I didn't see him again until I saw him very briefly when they, they took him into the NICU to get um, the newborn checks that they do and then they put him in um the patient transport because I was at the Royal Women's at this stage and they needed to transport him to the children's so they put him in this special unit which is for transporting babies from the women's over to the children which looked like a spaceship like it's the only way I can describe it is this enormous thing tubes everywhere and I when they brought him back down very very briefly on the way to the children's I just got to saw him and see him in that machine which was just terrifying and then I didn't get to see him again until the following afternoon and and obviously that the first 24 hours of after giving birth is quite intense anyway I actually was quite I was still very very relieved that he was okay um and elated that he was born but but I within 24 hours had to make some life saving decisions or, or life and death decisions because they they decided that the the medication they'd given him was was helping but wasn't helping as much as they would like and so they needed to do a procedure which was a catheter procedure where they essentially feed a balloon a balloon catheter up up into his heart to actually make the hole between the heart the two ventricles slightly larger to help with that um, oxygenation process. And so he had to go under general anaesthetic within 24 hours and go through this life-saving procedure, which was just terrifying having to make those decisions. So were you, where were you at that point? Were you still at the Royal or were you at the children? Like, so, yeah. yeah. I was at the women's um, with, yeah, yeah, I was at the women's still um, having spent my first night there when we got a call from one of the um, what's called a, cardi- a cardiac interventionist, so someone who like a surgeon but not sort of an open heart type surgeon more, um, his skill was with catheters 
and he essentially told us in pretty matter-of-fact terms, um, this is what's happening with your baby. We, our um, recommendation is he goes through this procedure. I've actually got time in a couple of hours, so I'd like to do it then. Can you come and sign the consent forms, please? This was on the phone. And I was like, no, that's actually not okay. Can I please just firstly come over and see him before you take him away into another procedure? And they understood that. So I went over there, got to hold him for a little while and then had the staff talk me through the procedure. So when when they have procedures like this, they, they have to talk you through the consent form. And I still remember one of the fellows coming in and was talking me through the consent form and his, and one of the risks was death. Even though it wasn't common, um, it was one of the risks and just, oh, like, because you know what you like after giving birth anyway, you're so emotional. Oh, absolutely. And the hormones are just absolutely crippling. So I already felt like I could cry at the drop of a hat. And so this was just having to make these decisions, which, I mean, it wasn't really a decision. It, it did have to happen, but I still needed to consent. Did you and, have someone and, else in the room with you at that time to, you know, help support? Uh, so hubby was so hubby was there, and we were just yes. both completely overwhelmed. And you just have to trust in the doctors. But I did have one of the other another doctor come through who actually explained the procedure to me. It was a female doctor who explained it to me in a in a better way. She actually let us feel like we were we had. A, all of the information and got to sort of see the pros and cons of these procedures and she, she just explained it so well and that was at, at the point where we were able to give consent or felt comfortable to give consent. And then, yeah, he went in for his procedure. We went out and sat on the grass. Well, I tried to sit, you know, what it's like. I was sort of <laughs> half sitting, half lying, like on one, on one butt cheek <laughs> where it didn't hurt and just waited and it took about an hour that first procedure. So that was the first 24 hours. Far out. So after that, so you, you hear after the hour that I'm assuming it went well at that mm. point, that yep. first procedure went okay. Yep. So more decisions had to be made at that point? Or? So at that point um, the plan was, okay, so he, he'd come out of that fine and I just remember coming in and seeing him and I just could not stop crying. It was like oh, my, it was like my face was just leaking constantly. Yeah. So even though I wasn't, I mean, I was obviously upset, but it was just like my body was just like my eyes were leaking, you know, just it just was this, oh, the hormones are just brutal. Yeah. Plus the fear. And I'd never known, I'd never known such love and such terror in the same moment. Like I, I, I had this rush of love, like indescribable. This is my little person. Like I just had finally got to set eyes on him, and he was just so beautiful. And this absolute terror that maybe I wouldn't get to keep him. And it was just literally. I feel like I'm getting goosebumps hearing you say that. Like as a mother, like my goodness. And you do, and it was funny floating around the hospital. Like what I think a lot of mums may not realise is there are so many mums like just going through this just horrible experience, especially the children's like that obviously is uh, the, the, the every child comes attached, well, not every, but most children come attached with mum and dad. And, yeah, but the, the resilience that you build though 
through that. So our first six weeks was very different to the, the first six weeks of a typical mum. But maybe we'll get to this. In some ways, though, I feel like we skipped somewhat of a different type of hard hard period because I know the first six weeks for, for quote-unquote normal mums is also really hard. Ours was different because we had to leave Alfie at the hospital for those those first six weeks um, and he was quite ill. And so rather than staying over at the hospital, I did actually choose to go home um, whilst we were waiting for him to get better uh, just for my own my own well-being. Um, but but to continue on with that story, so a week after he had the um, the balloon atrial septostomy, which was the catheter um, procedure, he had open heart surgery on day seven of life. So this was the surgery we'd been waiting for. This was the life saving surgery that we knew he would have to have, um, and he, that he couldn't survive without that procedure. And the Again, the terror leading up to that, just each day, like this date was looming over our head. It was just horrific. And at any time anyone even suggested that he wouldn't be, like I couldn't even entertain the thought that he wouldn't make it through that surgery. It just, I just couldn't even go there. Like I was just focusing on the moment. There, there were a few times where people made comments without meaning to, like, oh, we'd really like to come to the hospital before his surgery, just in case we don't get another chance. And just even comments, like they didn't, like our, our parents were both suffering as well through through this experience and they, of course, wanted to see see Alfie. Um, but just the even the insinuation that it was their, potentially their only chance, I just could not even go there. And it would just lead me just in floods of of tears. Which, yeah, again, amplified by the hormones. Like, I, I, I actually don't know what part of it was the terror versus the hormones. I think it was all definitely all mixed up together. From what I've heard, the hormones, even in a normal situation, are pretty all-consuming. You feel the most vulnerable you've ever felt in your life after you've given birth, mm. let alone. And that's when you're holding your child, you know, and, you know, assuming it's healthy, you're holding and you still feel so vulnerable and emotional. I could not even imagine not being able to do that, you know, hold your child as often as you need to or having to mm. sleep separate from them or seeing yeah. them in a spaceship. Th- like, so it would have been, I think, a lot of the terror aspect of what was happening too. Yeah, so we never got to hold him that first week, really. Like, Really? No. No, we did. Well, actually, that's not true. We did hold him, um, but but yeah. So in that first week before his open heart surgery, we did get to hold him, but he had so many cords sticking out of him. So he had like because he had drips in both hands. He had um, oxygen because he was he was still having quite low blood saturation, so it wasn't as oxygenated as it's as, as it should be. We had machines beeping every just going off every time it would dip below a critical figure. He had, um, what else? Yeah, he just had monitors on him, monitors on his heart, monitors for his pulse, everything. So so picking him up and try, I actually tried to breastfeed that week because they did encourage me, but it was just impossible because he had, cause he had oxygen in his nose and he was being fed um, through an NG tube as well, through his nose. He, he just... Um, he, because he had tape on his cheeks, he just couldn't um, figure out the natural cues that come with breastfeeding because um, it was just confusing for him. 
So we had to feed him. So we did get to feed him his colostrum before the the tube went in. We got to feed him the colostrum through a syringe, which I'm not sure if that's normal. I think some mums might you, do that you anyway. Can do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that so that's maybe quite normal. But yeah, breastfeeding again, just so hard. And I assume it's so hard anyway. Trying yeah, to teach, but let alone <laughs> with all with that, like a compromise, you know, oh. with the equipment and all of that. Yep. So, what did that mean for you then, as far as your milk supply? Is that something that you just never then breastfed because he wasn't no. breastfeeding to start with? Or? Well, actually, we were really lucky. So he didn't breastfeed. I think he maybe latched once in that first week, um, but we couldn't. It just wasn't working. So I ended up expressing on the encouragement from the staff and I probably not as much as you would if, if I was feeding, but I was, I was expressing maybe, I don't know, up to eight times a day. And I was also trying to get up in the night to breast, uh, sorry, to express because I knew that would be good for a supply. But, but because life was so stressful, I didn't, I didn't put too much pressure on myself in relation to that because I was, I just knew for my own resilience, I needed sleep to keep myself together. Um, but I, and I kept expressing, so after the open heart surgery, he still couldn't feed, um, obviously, because he was recovering from surgery and had, um, he ended up being ventilated for four, five, four weeks, maybe after, after his open heart surgery. So what does that mean exactly? So he's got a tube down his throat, essentially a tube, uh, yeah, tube down his yeah so he's got a tube down his throat and then um and is being oxygenated through that um so that goes I don't know whether it goes I think it goes in his either his nose or his throat um but it essentially goes down and and it's breathe it's oxygen and it's breathing support so he couldn't breathe on his own um he I mean he was breathing somewhat on his own but because it was putting so much pressure on his system he needed that extra support for, for a good four weeks after. And then he also had an, an NG tube to feed him um, and therefore was not getting any he was he was not getting any any of my milk and I had to keep I had to keep expressing for that whole period of time. It's funny, I'm just trying to recall some of the details now and it's actually maybe from a self protective mechanism. I can't remember all of the details. But after but after the surgery, he also then got a condition. He had some complications. So he got a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is where um, because his blood had not been very well perfused, so not very well oxygenated um, through and, and his muscles went and organs went very well oxygenated because of the heart issues, he ended up getting this condition and that's where there's there's some deadening of the bowel. So at that point... They couldn't even give him my milk through the NG tube. They had to actually feed him through um, a drip. So, it, so the, the the TPN, which is the, the what they feed him, uh, it's called I think total parental nutrition. It goes straight into the blood, so it bypasses the stomach because his stomach was sick basically. So he didn't get any milk that whole time and lost a lot of weight. But I had to just keep expressing. To come back to your original question about breastfeeding, um, when we eventually got home at six weeks, he he and I actually learnt how to do the breastfeeding. So we hadn't been able to do it in hospital with all the tubes, but once we got home, we figured it out. So luckily he was taking a bottle though. So before before the surgery, um, 
And then before we came home from hospital, he had adapted to a bottle, which is great because a lot of babies that are sick um, end up staying on an NG tube for a long time because they, they haven't quite figured out how to suck. But he was fantastic. So he's just such a resilient little little thing. And we worked it out. So you had the open heart surgery, came out of that relatively successfully. However, there was that bowel Exactly. Issue. Yes, correct. And then following that, was there another procedure that had to happen for the bowel or does that rectify itself? Yeah, good question. So, there, so, this is, this, so this was a week after his open heart surgery that we discovered he had this condition. So the abbreviation is NEC, necrotizing enterocolitis. So the treatment for that um, there's either a um, surgical treatment or a non-surgical treatment. The surgical treatment is that they actually go in and cut out a piece of the, of the bowel, which would have been another major surgery. So one week after, we were considering that he might need this surgery, but we made the decision to wait 24 hours. And during that 24 hours, he started very, very slowly starting to get better from the fasting, which was which is the non-surgical treatment and the antibiotics. So he started very, very slowly starting to get better. So th- this condition basically swells up the bowel, sort of like, you know, you know, like um, you see malnourished children like in Ethiopia with a really bloated bowel. It, that's kind of the level of bloating that his tummy had. So he, he, and it was just, he was in so much pain that they had to put him on some quite strong painkillers. So he was on morphine and fentanyl and all of these very, very severe medications to treat the pain from from that condition. But we narrowly avoided that surgery, so I will forever be grateful that he didn't have to go through that again. So that one was just waiting, which was actually in some ways harder because every single day we were looking for any kind of improvement. And every single day we'd come in, there would some days there'd be a bit of a forward step or at least not a backward step, and then other days he will have, got some other condition, you know, um, some other minor things. So he got a, he got another infection while he was in there. He also had um, some pretty severe swelling through his body, which because the body, um, it, the body essentially gets quite full of liquid, and they had to be draining all of this liquid off his off his body. So he had another drug that was pumping liquid in, another one that was pumping it out. He had several blood transfusions whilst he was in there, which which helped somewhat as well. So just just so many things. It was just so medicalised. Far out. So you're going in and leaving every day, every yep. evening. And yep. how do you look after your own mental health during that time? Yeah, it just oh, it, it was really tough. So I think it was the – so I we made a very conscious decision every single day that we were in there to – always um, go home so that we could at least be getting sleep. So we'd have a bit of time away from the hospital where we just could just chill out a little bit to, you know, as much as we could. Um, I was trying to go for a walk every day. Luckily the children's is is situated within Royal Park. So, so there's actually some lovely areas to walk around there. It was February, so the weather was nice. We would go out and sit in the sun and just try and savour those small things. And then friends, friends were just amazing through that time. So I didn't see anyone um, because we were at the hospital, but friends were, for example, sending us meals, um, sending flowers, sending gifts, sending texts. Um, one of my friends actually um, became like the uh, 
um, communications manager. So she was managing all of the communication with all of my broader friendship circle, providing information, all these sorts, sorts of things just to take that off my plate. So people were sending well wishes, but they weren't asking for an update daily because she was giving those updates. Just really pragmatic support. My my parents were coming in and so were Luke's parents, so that was great when they could. Uh, so that, that was huge support. And also the nurses at the hospital, because he was in ICU, uh, the paediatric ICU, he had 24-hour one-on-one nurse support and they're just angels on earth, those nurses. So the staff at the children's are just incredible. Um, and I just tried to really keep positive. So at the end of every day we would do a gratitude journal so write down three things that that we were grateful for, even if they were the smallest things you could imagine. So if we'd gone for a, for a walk and been a sunny day or we'd found a park easily or, you know, we'd really enjoyed our coffee or we'd had a little smile from Alfie, which was probably not a smile so much as, you know, even just. So at that stage he was starting to open his eyes. Um, so we were reading to him every day as well talking to the mums of the other patients, just little things like that and just took each day as it, as it came. What does that do then, I guess, for your relationship even? I mean, having gone through this horrendous experience, like do you feel as though, I mean, you were close already but does it bring you even closer mm. together? Like, well, yeah, what does it do for your relationship? Yes, we went through what's ups and downs. So, so the actual experience of the birth and um the week or so after that yeah that we we could not have been more close so so luke i think it was hyper luke because i i was obviously really really distressed and i think there's something about birth that makes that that makes it more about the mother you know because you're obviously going through the physical trauma so throughout all of this as well i was cover, recovering from episiotomy and just the general post-birth stuff. This is where my physical fitness, by the way, was just absolute lifesaver because I actually bounced back pretty well because I had been so healthy and fit, which I'm eternally grateful for. But I still was recovering from from quite a difficult birth. Oh, well, it was only difficult from, from that forceps point onwards. Um, so it was probably a little bit more about me. And then I also had the hormones and I was trying to express. So he was just a pillar of strength through that. I think it was probably hard for him because maybe he didn't get as much of a chance to fall apart because he was always trying to hold himself together for for me. But, yeah, we were definitely very close during that time. There, there were times, of course, where there was we were both upset and so tension was, I suppose, higher. So we, we definitely had some some harder periods during that first six weeks as well. I bet. And making these huge decisions. And as mm. you said, often they're not even really decisions. They're just okays that you yes. have to provide. Yeah. And just you're standing on the side of a cliff going, okay, you know, hope I don't end up, you know, falling off this cliff and who knows what's going to happen sort of thing. So, I mean, it would make anyone just, I mean, that's why I ask about the resilience because I'm yeah, just like, oh, I can't imagine ever have you know like and you can't imagine right unless you're mm. in that position you just would never no. can never prepare yourself for something like that no, I think we, we both tried to keep really positive so we never ever discussed the possibility that we would lose him even though we we realized later that both of us had that had obviously been our absolute deepest fear but not once did we um voice that fear with each other and with anyone actually because we just could not even go there 
it was just focusing on the little improvements. Probably the better, better, because it got quite dark for a while there where every single day we were just coming in and and it seemed like there was no improvement. We were just waiting for him to get better from this um, stomach condition. And around about the month mark after we made a bit of a, um, we sort of went on a slightly different journey because the, the hospital staff said to us, look, at this point, typically recovering from their surgery, the babies will have gone home. They will have gotten better and Alfie's not getting better. He's actually in some ways getting worse and he was off on on a trajectory that they had not expected. So it was almost like every 1% of risk things kept happening to him and it just was like one thing after another. And, um, and yeah, it was at that one-month point where they sat us down and said, look, we're now in probably a different territory where you're going to be here for a long time and the reason for that is the the longer that a baby's in hospital the harder it is to get them out of hospital because of things like um, drug dependency and also um, they they then have to learn to breastfeed as well or or to have feeding complications that sort of happen and and obviously the longer you're in hospital the longer you're exposed to other germs and possibility. So once you sort of hit that one month mark, I think it was a 28 day mark, that's when they go, look, you're now probably going to be in here for a long while. So it was in the end only six weeks, but they were preparing us for, actually, I think maybe it was seven weeks. They were preparing us for the possibility that it would be months and months and that they could not give us a date. Because even once he started to get better, we then had to go on a regime of drug weaning. But Alfie is literally a superhero so he went through that period just so well like he because I have to very 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 slowly withdraw them from the medication it's it's like you know they liken it to withdrawing from heroin because morphine is is such and fentanyl and all of these other um ketamines type you know strong strong drugs that he was on they had to keep changing the drugs that he was on to try to mitigate some of the issues with drug dependence because they actually start adapting to it. So they have to give him drugs to stop him from, um, to, to help the drugs to work. So he was on about 12 different drugs um, in the end. So they all have to be reversed really, really slowly. But he was put on an excellent plan by the hospital and they do it just in tiny um, drops. So that took two weeks after he his tummy got better to withdraw from the he, drugs. He's still at hospital at that point or he's back yep, home? Yeah, still at hospital. Yeah. Yep. No, they once, because these were all, so he had um, various essentially um, drips that these were all being delivered through. So he had a significant central line in his neck, which was attached um, to about five different drugs that were going in there. He had drips in his hand and his feet. He was on, um, he had um, catheters. So he can't leave hospital until he's only on oral medication. And sometimes kids do go home in with some oral medication, but he was completely off the drugs by the time we left hospital, which is amazing. And he just did that like a complete champ. And that took him only two weeks. And he got through that so well. And then he learned to breastfeed again against all odds. So he was just on some antibiotics by the time we got home. Did anything after that? Was it sort of kind of, I guess, business as usual in him just yeah. recovering? And Smooth everything? sailing, yeah. yeah wow. So he um, he was amazing. We had to go back in to get his stitches removed at one point from his chest because he obviously had had open heart surgery. 
But once those stitches came out, we could bath him like normal. He, at that stage, was doing a combo of breastfeeding and bottle feeding. So he's never been fully breastfed because um, because I had six or seven weeks just expressing my supply never got to a point where it was fully sustainable for him. Um, so we always had to supplement with um, with bottles, which is fine, with formula or um, or expressed um, breast milk. But, yeah, pretty much from that point onwards, he's just been normal. The, the, the non-normal aspect was that he was tiny. So by the time we got out of hospital, he was at his birth weight again. So when he was born, he was 3.46 kilos and he was roughly the same when he was discharged. So it was just on a bulking regime after that. And it's just been, I mean, every single thing that happens now is just literally a joy. Yeah, because you've just come out of that experience. I feel like even the things that we as mums, you know, really struggle with, I guess, again, it's perspective on what you've experienced, but I'm assuming even things like sleepless nights and stuff like that, you're just like, you know what, bring it. Like, you know, like yeah. obviously it's challenging, <laughs> but, you know, you just have such a different perspective on life, like coming out of that. Talk to me about that. Like how did this experience change you? Yeah, I think I, I literally would say a prayer of thanks every single night and I probably it's only probably now that he's eight months that I'm I I'm I wouldn't say that I take it for granted now but I have literally thanked thanked God every single day for for him being with us um and yeah we take such joy and we probably haven't had we haven't had any issues with things like sleeping and feeding that other mums have I think just through luck Maybe, you know, the universe <laughs> thought that we'd had enough. So we, we he's been a really good sleeper and a relatively good feeder and, and eater. So we haven't had things like colic or um, sleeplessness, which which is, you know, one of the, the, the usual difficulties, I suppose. But I, just on that note, though, like even when I met my the mums from my mother's group, um, I was always really cautious about not wanting to to be that person who made other people feel like their worries were, were, you know, were less in comparison because yes, we had this really terrible experience, but we didn't like, if that was our experience and it, for, for mums who were going through a normal process, if you like, those first six weeks sound like they're terrifying on another level. And if you hadn't experienced something worse, that would still be tough, you know? And I never wanted to shut people down from talk, being able to talk about their challenges because, yeah, in some ways we had it worse, in some ways we had it easier than other mums or parents. What would you say to women, you know, listening who are potentially going to experience what you experienced? As you said, you were somewhat prepared in that you knew during your pregnancy that there were going to be challenges or women who, you know, are going through these sort of challenges. What is sort of the mm. overarching advice you could provide them? Good question. I, I mean, I think you need to be okay with, with focusing on yourself as well. So we were really deliberate about trying to do one thing every day that made us feel um Feel, feel better about ourselves. So whether that be going for a walk, whether that be seeing a friend, whether that be just 
going home early to have a good night's sleep. You know, we, we ate, tried to eat together and definitely we're having a few wines together. I won't lie, but just having that time together. So we could have just been eating hospital food, for example, but we actually always try to, um, leave the hospital and just go to like a local pub or something and just have a nice glass of wine, have a nice dinner and just get away. Whereas I think quite often you feel that you should be there, um, every second of the day, but we knew that we needed to invest in our own well-being. It's like a marathon, not a sprint. So you have to sustain your own energy. And in order to do that, you need to be filling up your own bucket with good things. So we, we made a very, very conscious, very deliberate choice to do that every single day. Um, and similar with the gratitude. So even though some of the things we were grateful for were almost ridiculous because they were so tiny, we, we tried to focus on, on that as well. And savouring things like being outside in the sun, being able to have a glass of wine after nine months. I would say mm-hmm. don't feel guilty about that. And you mentioned that your friends were a great support and particularly having your communications manager. <laughs> um, do you, <laughs> would that be sort of a, a word of advice, I guess, for friends who are seeing another friend experience some challenging times? Yeah, I think it's pragmatic. So I, I think I read, I read somewhere, and this makes sense to me, that when you're offering to support someone, Instead of saying, what can I do? Just say, I could do this. This is happening. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. So I had, for example, quite a few, a few friends were like, well, what can I do to help? Just let me know. And I would never, ever let anyone know what I needed. Cause you know, you're just like, you don't, you kind of don't want to be a burden on people. And so I had other friends who were like, look, this has happened. I've made you a lasagna. I'm dropping around your house. It's fully, um, you know, it's in, um, like a, a coolie bag or whatever. So it can just sit there. This is just so you know, this is happening. You don't need to ask. This is, this is just happening. I, I remember thinking, wow, that actually helped so much. Um, or people sending me a text, just checking in and saying, look, don't please don't worry about calling me back. You don't even have to text me back. I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you. Um, and so many times we got home to find flowers or things on our front doorstep and it just, it just, we felt like there was this whole community of people around us doing things and helping in any way they could. Um, and I think it's the really pragmatic stuff that people were doing that really helped. And That's not waiting thing. for Makes me to ask. a lot of sense because you're not in the headspace. I mean, look, as you said, you either don't want to be a burden or you're not in the headspace to be thinking about sort of other people. Sometimes you can't even articulate what you need. So for someone to take charge would certainly make a big difference, I would assume. And just to ask um, what you need as well. Like I know, so the same friend who was our, our, our comms manager, um, she had us around for dinner twice. It was just a barbecue. She's like, look, do you want to talk about it? If so, we'll talk about it. Do you want to actually not talk about it and we'll just talk silly stuff, like like what do you actually need? And and if you need to cry, we will cry. If you want us to, to make you laugh, we'll make you laugh. If you want to get drunk, we'll get drunk, you know, it, it, which we didn't, obviously, because um, that probably would not have been helpful, but would have made, would have made it worse. worse. Did yeah. not need to, that as well. And we were still expressing and things like that. Um, but it was... Just you tell me what you need. I ask all of our mothers um, the final question around how motherhood has changed them. So if we go back to where we started the call, you know, I mentioned that I'm very 
career focused, very um, social and very active, I would say that I'm actually still 100% all three of those things. Um, but then career career is still, still very, very important in my life. So I actually, in, in, in some ways, it, it career becomes, or having a really good job becomes more important because when you're working, you're not with your bubby. So you want to make sure that, that your job is something that you love and not just something that you're enduring because if what's the point of being away from your family if it's for a crap job? Like it just makes it irrelevant. But I know also I need to work to be happy and I'm a better mum when I'm working. So I actually did go back to work at about six months after I had Alfie and I actually did find that I I think I'm a better I don't know if I'm necessarily a better mum, but I definitely feel better working. And because I'm I'm working 100% from home, and my husband is 100% um, uh, stay-at-home dad at the moment, that it actually works quite nicely for us. That I, because I don't think you can even. I absolutely adore being a mum. Like it's just a complete and utter joy. And I know I couldn't do that 100%, and that's okay. You know, I think it's okay. And I felt very, very guilty going back to work. But I 100% am glad that I have because I know it's important to my identity as well. And I'm, I'm very I'm very much a big believer in balance. So if you're ever doing anything to the extreme, that doesn't work for me. So I couldn't be extreme mum because when, when I was full-time on maternity leave, I became almost a little bit neurotic about being a mum. I, I was trying to win at mumming. Sounds relatable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was trying to, uh, you know, you get obsessed with things like sterilising your entire house. Um, every time your food must be organic And before I realised that I just can't be bothered with that anymore. Even when I'm making my own food, which I felt like I had to do, it couldn't be anything from a pouch. I would have to sterilise the equipment. And then it just, it became, it became a 140% job. Yes. So now going back to work, I still you know, try to prepare food, but it's all become balanced. It's not organic anymore. I, sometimes I will, I will be using pouches. Sometimes I'm doing my own food. I'm not trying to be mum at 140%. So motherhood then has potentially given you more balance in your life as far as career. And- I think it has. I, I certainly now would not be wanting to work long hours anymore. I, and I don't want to work past five. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be putting everything into work. It's just now. Work is now still extremely important to me, but now just one aspect of my identity. Well, thank you so much, Kat, for sharing your journey. I mean, look, it it means so much, and I'm sure it will resonate with so many listeners. And um, I really appreciate you being so open and honest. No, that's fine. If I could say one last thing to any mum who's out there struggling, is that you will get through it. And at the time, it does feel like every second is like an hour or a day. But you eventually do get through the, if, if it is about sickness or something else that's quite extreme, it will, you will get through this and just take each day as it comes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and give us five stars if you're feeling fancy. By subscribing to the podcast, every new episode will drop into your podcast library each week. Subscribing is also such an essential way for people to find us and to enable us to grow. Want to be part of the Mum Life community? Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at Mum Life Podcast. 
Until next time, keep living your best mum life.